0: LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and I want to thank our newest sponsors. This show is able to go on because of sponsors. So thank you for supporting them. And I love to tell you about things that I love. And today I'm bringing you another conversation related to the topic of religious trauma. My guest today is Dr. Mark Karras. Dr. Mark Gregory Karras is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a full-time private practice in San Diego, California. He specializes in religious trauma and couples therapy and is a published author of the best-selling books, Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Toward Spiritual and Emotional Healing, and the newly released, The Diabolical Trinity, Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, Tormenting Hell, and a Sinful Self. And we were talking about that book, today his newest book. So I want to be clear for people who are listening that speaking of religious trauma is not bashing religion. It's talking about the traumatic aspects of some religious practices that can cause lifelong pain and and trauma for people. And what Mark talks about in his book is the harm that can be caused by belief systems involving the idea that there's a wrathful God who punishes sinful people and they go to an everlasting hell. I mean, really, when you think about that, that's pretty obviously a harmful thing, especially to teach children before they have the critical thinking skills to decide what, they, what their personal beliefs are. And that's what we talked about. He talks about his experience of growing up in a family that had a lot of chaos and dysfunction, trauma and loss and how that led him to turning toward Christianity. And then he had some experiences that were very transformative for him through that process and have led him to where he is now. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Think about it. Think about how, if you're a therapist, how this might affect clients that you work with or people in your life, maybe yourself. As always, I appreciate you listening to Therapy Chat. Take care. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Mark Karras. Mark, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today.
1: Laura, great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm excited to talk to you about your your work, your books, and the topic of religious trauma in general. But let's just start off by you telling our audience a little more about who you are and what what you do before we dive in.
1: Sure. Well, who am I? Gosh, that's so existential. But I'll I'll go to the more socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a therapist, private practice, San Diego, full-time practice. I was an adjunct at Point Loma Nazarene University for a little bit. And yeah, dad, husband, yeah, author, just came out with the fourth book, which we'll get and talk about today. And yeah, that's about it.
0: Congratulations. So why don't you tell us the title of your newest book?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a big one. It's a big title. Healing the Diabolical Trinity, a Healing Religious Trauma from a Wrathful God, a Tormenting Hell in a Sinful Self. Yeah. So just to share with the audience, some people hear the diabolical trinity and think I'm being somehow pejorative to Christian understanding of the trinity. So for some reason, I have to make that explicit. I'm not talking about the trinity, but the interrelated understanding of, yeah, a wrathful God, tormenting hell and a sinful self, otherwise known as hell indoctrination.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's great that you just explained that because it is a a little bit of a provocative title, right? That I would say, yes. <laughs> but the the trinity of a wrathful God, tormenting hell, and a sinful self are a pretty destructive mm. group of of three. So I think it fits.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a reason that I I sort of name it that way, in the sense because I was just going to talk about the religious trauma of hell, hell indoctrination, but then I was as I was Wrestling through it and writing, I realized you cannot have a hell where there's eternal conscious torment without a wrathful God who created it. And you can't have that kind of hell without evil and sinful people to be put there for eternity. So, yeah, so there is this interrelated trifold nature of these of hell indoctrination that they can't be separated. And as you suggested, they have a lot of negative consequences. I will say not for everybody, which makes this an interesting conversation. Because another person's theological trash is another person's theological treasure. So there are people who come out unscathed with this kind of doctrine and praise God for being so just to have created a place like this, because God is so holy. But I am more focused on many people who have experienced it as traumatic. We'll talk about more about that in a, in a minute. About
0: yeah. Right. So if for those who this doesn't impact, we're not referring to them, but we're talking about people who have been traumatized by this. And Mm-mm. so let's start off with really how did you get into working with and writing about hell indoctrination and religious trauma?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, I became a Christian. I'll give the the shortened version here. I became a Christian at the age of 21. It was a very sort of powerful Damascus of the road experience. Let's say, you know, allusion to uh, the Apostle Paul and how Jesus, you know, knocked him off his horse and uh, he became a Christian after that. But I grew up very in a very wildly dysfunctional family. Everyone has a dysfunctional family, I think, but mine was a little off the charts, sort of lifetime drama kind of experienced mom addicted to drugs, died of a drug overdose, father mentally ill. My great grandmother died in the mental hospital. Her sister was mentally ill. My brother has paranoid schizophrenia. He will be in prison for the rest of his life. And my stepfather was in the motorcycle gang, the pagans, and she would wind up going to prison. And and, yeah, long story there. So I I did become a Christian and it was really life-changing for me. It was a very Spiritual transformative experience, but then I got saved from one hell in a sense into another in a very, what they would call a legalistic church. Men couldn't have facial hair. Women couldn't even trim their hair or it would be considered sin. And they would be actually scared of going to hell because of it. And so this kind of religious milieu created such a, you know, really bound me up in a very anxiety, a trauma in way that I got to the point where if I drink soda, I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit and that I would go to hell. And I remember having an experience with, uh, there was a visiting preacher where I we went to this event and uh, I looked up to him like he was like, God's prophet, you know. And I remember telling him that I drank wine at a wedding, just, you know, it was not passing, you know, talking about the wedding experience. And he looked at me and he said, you are in danger of hellfire. I was like, why? Because I drank wine. And within this religious tradition it was called apostolic oneness, Pentecostalism, even drinking wine was considered a sin. And that created such an indelible mark on my nervous system that I think that and many other experiences of really being scared of, of an omnipotent kind of God who can cause punishment, violent punishment, not only in this life, but in the life to come really set my nervous system as a very sensitive soul to to experience what we would call religious trauma at some point. So having my own experiences, then becoming a therapist, experiencing many other Christians and other traditions where religious trauma was a thing. And people don't realize this is actually a sort of a subculture it's a subset of people because some people could be in a church like and, and come out of it like yeah I didn't experience any trauma yeah I was taught about the rapture and and hell and stuff but I really didn't buy into it but some people that I would work with would experience very debilitating symptoms uh, due to religious trauma and so that I really had a real passion for helping people recover not only you know can people be traumatized by authoritarian coercive leaders? So that's where spiritual abuse came from. And there's an evolution of consciousness around the stuff, but beliefs, religious beliefs can also be traumatizing. Yeah. so this is something I've become very passionate about.
0: Yeah. Well, and thank you for sharing, first of all, about the losses you've experienced your mom and, and the things that have happened in your family and all the, the pain that, you mentioned even speaking so briefly about it yeah, and also for sharing about you know how this became what you focus in in your work I guess it would make sense to me just to ask like obviously I know about trauma but how does religious Mm. trauma specifically Mm. show up for people You know, you talked about being anxious and bound up in that, but there's like, as you were talking about, I was just thinking, like, where there's the person who's in the experience who's trying to kind of follow the rules. And it sounds traumatizing to have so much powerlessness and and so much, you know, external control. And when you've already been raised in a traumatic home, that makes sense that that would be both like keeping yeah. you in that environment and keeping you sort of frozen within that environment in a way.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: Potentially. Yeah. But, but what is it, how does it show up the trauma itself for people when they're dealing yeah. with religious trauma?
1: Sure. Well, maybe I'll start off by just talking about maybe an operational definition for me. And I very sensitive to defining trauma and religious trauma because i really wanted to come from the heart and the mind and the body of people that i work with but sort of in general religious trauma describes the enduring harmful effects caused by repeated encounters with suffocating religious beliefs oppressive and painful behaviors from religious people uh, such as you know rejection and demonizing and pathologizing and we can talk more about that, but also constricting rules and confining religious structures. So religious trauma often has negative effects on one's nervous system, emotional landscape, view of self and others' relationships. And so for me and and others, the symptoms occurred gradually over time. I would say similar to drinking water contaminated with toxic metals, where an individual is unaware of the slow drip poison that slowly seeps into their body. And I've also experienced a couple of Jarring religious traumatic events that was likened to an earthquake that can instantly shatter and shake an individual's foundation and leaves them struggling to regain footing in the world. So, in a general sense, that you know that's religious trauma. As as Laura Anderson, she's coming out with the book I think is phenomenal. When religion hurts, uh, trauma is trauma. Religious trauma is trauma. And so, you know, like I said, it could be due to beliefs, or be- painful behaviors. Uh, constricting rules and religious structures. But how it shows up can be different. But in the book, I talk about the debilitating anxiety that can come from this, of the trauma's effect on the body and the view of the body. Because remember, I'm also in Hell Indoctrination, I'm talking about original sin and the notion that we're no good. How often that I heard the, the lines of, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. There's nothing good, nothing good dwells within you. Or repeating the scriptures in the New Testament where it said that our righteousness is as filthy menstrual racks, you know, or that there's nothing good within the body. It's fleshly. It's not spiritual. So hearing these messages over and over again, we're going to have a certain view of self that is very debilitating, very constricted, very shame filling. And that's another piece of the toxic shame that can come from this. And then, of course, the, the bedfellow of shame of the self-criticism. I'm a sinner. I'm no good. I'm evil. Nothing good dwells within me. So, of course, you're going to walk around almost on eggshells in the earth and throw in some other doctrines of, of demons, right? Where there's like a demon behind every bush. That's the way it was for me in this Pentecostal tradition. Where not only God can harm you for sinning, but God can send some demons to harm you, where it opens the doors to the devil. And so I remember being deathly afraid. Imagine the, the panic, the hypervigilance one would have. Like, I literally would walk around like, who's a Christian, who's not? Uh, who's like filled with demons and who's not? If I did this sin, be a little personal. I remember I, you know, I masturbated. And that's a whole other topic of purity culture. You know, it's a big conversation now, not only for women, but men have been affected. But I literally thought that I would go to hell, that I would open the door to demon oppression in some way because I engaged in a form of self-pleasure where people in my tribe and religious tradition got kicked out of church for not being able to stop masturbating. So imagine the anxiety around that. And then I talk about betrayal trauma and of course rejection from the community. So there's a lot of of consequences and how trauma can show up in religious context.
0: Yeah. Sorry for like, throwing so no, much at you, but it's, no. it's very,
1: there's a lot, you know. It's
0: so complicated and this is the same experience yeah. I had when I interviewed someone about purity culture. I was just like Uh, the enormity just like is astounding because it's like if you're in, you don't Mm -hmm. feel safe because you know that you're inherently bad and you're going to screw up and you don't want to. And if anyone finds out, you'll be, you will be out. But then if you're out, you know, you're also being, I don't know abused, mistreated by, you know, being called all these horrible Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. and and told all these things about yourself that are just as if like you don't deserve to exist. So it's kind of like a no-win situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so many different, you know, consequences for this stuff. I mean, we all, you know, this rejection hurts, like that in itself, being rejected from our community. You know we are neurobiologically wired to belong to a tribe and intimately connect with others. So, when leaving our fold—a little sort of plug to when uh, Marlene Winnell's uh, book, the sort of grandmother of religious trauma material—you know, it, it leaving our fold in our tribe could fill us with tremendous anguish and turmoil, right? Because we have a need to feel safe and to feel loved and belong and. And so it really taps into that primitive aspect of our of our brain. And so these things, when we're kicked out and shoved out or judged for being out, our nervous system encodes these, you know, loneliness and isolation and rejection as primal threats. And loneliness can cause anxiety and produce considerable amount of stress hormones, which ripple through our bodies and brains, with a lot of consequences to our immune system and well being. And I think there is research where it shows that rejection. Has shown up in our brain is just the same area where physical pain is.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So rejection is painful. It hurts. Uh, And it's just like physical pain, but people can't see it. You know, it's something that we hold within ourselves. And then again, throw in the isolation and the aloneness. So there's a lot of consequences to religious trauma.
0: Yeah. Wow. I just, I know that so many people, first of all, so many people find comfort in religion and, Mm -hmm. you know, lean on it when they're in their darkest days. And then also so many people, I think, push those kinds of beliefs on other people, even in Mm -hmm. a desire to help them. Like, you know, I can remember with my children, you know, some family members who were very religious and we were not, who were very concerned about if we didn't have our children baptized, they would go to hell. I was so offended by that. Like (sighs) my children are little balls of love. They're not going to hell. (laughs) I don't believe in hell anyway, but Mm -hmm. you know, to that other person, to what I felt was they were being oppressive towards me, but in their mind, they felt that they were actually trying to help me and my children.
1: Yeah, that's, it really does point to the complexity around religion. I always try to take a compassionate lens. Yeah, and you know these people. I was there myself. You know, I was telling people what I thought was the truth. You know, and and part of healing from what religious trauma is for some. There's so much guilt around. Gosh, I told so many people that they were going to hell, and some people, you know, let's say LGBTQ plus, you know, where they remember you know, shaming them and, you know, telling them that there was going to be this God who, you know, there's such cognitive dissonance. This God loves you, but if you don't do what this God says, he will send you to be punished for eternity. Like not just 10 years, 100, a 1000, a million, a billion, trillion, zillion, like eternity to be punished because you did not do and believe in the right way. So that's one aspect of, you know, in some of my work, working with people is helping them heal from not only the trauma that was incurred to them, but sometimes the trauma that they incur on, on others because of uh, things that they were telling them. So there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of complexity too. And, and may I just say one more thing? You reminded me of the compassion. I Religion um, and healthy religion can can be healthy, you know? Like when I talk about this, I don't want to give the impression that I'm anti-religion, anti-spirituality. I mean, there's some beautiful aspects to healthy religion. And so I never want to knock that. It's It helps us to, you know, to make our way in the world when there's so much complexity and chaos can offer comfort and community and care. So I just want to put that piece in there. I'm not here to trash religion. Uh, I'm I'm more here to talk about trashing toxic religions and I'm not even talking about people. I'm talking about the beliefs, the system, the structure uh, that's sort of involved in perpetuating these kinds of things.
0: Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes and don't forget, go to therapy and use promo code chat to get two free months. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that difference. And I, I know that it can be things again can seem very black and white and people can be, be hmm. very, protective and when they feel that their belief system is being threatened. And I know so many people who have been raised, and this is another point I wanted to bring up, is you joined that that group when you were 21, but so many people never even have a choice. It's just mm-hmm. literally the water they're swimming in when they're born. And I feel like there's You know, developmentally and attachment wise, when we are in our first three and four years, the whole shame thing is a very important developmental stage that we can sort of get stuck with when things are overly focused on bad and good, you know? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. I in my
1: personal experience as a therapist the most uh, the severe most severe religious trauma is found with people who grew up in in religion yeah where you know the technical word for it would be more complex PTSD and there's it's huge and it's very intricate the work because they are, they not they have to be able to tease out which is very hard the trauma that came from religion and the trauma that came from my relationship with my parents and the entanglement within all that. And then there's also the, you know, gods in there too. So, and, you know, somehow in disentangling a people's understanding of God, because some want to still hold to a relationship with God, but to tease that out that, oh, God is not the community. And it's possible that the community and my parents were not, you know, they had a version of Christianity. They had a version of God that they were in relationship with that did not necessarily correspond with the God that I have come to understand as a God of love. Right. So disentangling that. But there's also people who are like, well, screw religion, you know, F God. f." And and I I honor where people are at. And there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I've I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and I'm okay with either not knowing and being an agnostic or some, for some, it's just a staunch sort of atheistic uh, sort of approach.
0: Yeah, and I think that some people may be spiritual, but they—it's not a quote God that they're focusing on, but they feel like a connection with nature, or you know, they're mm-hmm. they're still re- having like a higher power, existential, the spiritual mm-hmm. experience that isn't necessarily like I believe right. in God or I don't believe in God.
1: That's right. Yeah, and and there is a definition of religion. Uh, or, or spirituality, that's a better word, that's being connected with uh, something that feels more transcendent than who you are, connected to a larger framework, whether it's the universe, whether it's, you know, yeah creation or just other people in general, or some, you know, a higher power that exists that we could never know, but I'm just aware that something may have created us and the big bang. <laughs> Somehow but, you know.
0: something happened because we're here. Uh, but, but that's yet. okay. That's where,
1: people, <laughs> that's where people land on and that's okay for me. I don't need to get bogged down into the nuances or figuring out what religion is the right religion. Somehow we're all touching the elephant and we're all thinking that the elephant is the real or are part of the elephant as opposed to maybe we're just making the best sense of the data that we have and i'm just going to come to a place in being okay with not knowing.
0: Yeah. Well, i i think that one thing that you said before i wanted to name before we go into sort of like how people can deconstruct and how your book can help people learn about healing from those experiences. I just wanted to say that well, one thing i was thinking of was that yeah, that like the idea that there has to be a right answer for spirituality, like what people believe. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like for me, I'm, I'm okay with maybe the rest of my life is trying to understand. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get there before I die where I'll be like, oh, now I know what the answer is, or maybe I won't. But for me, that's okay. But I think what I was, yeah, what I was going to say was that when I can see how, because I'm also a trauma therapist and specialize in Mm. complex PTSD with, you know, abuse and chaos in the childhood and adverse experiences in childhood. So I feel like I can see how appealing it could be to have a framework where people who do wrong are punished. I mean, that feels Mm. really important to people who've experienced trauma that and abuse and attachment wounds that no one was ever held accountable for or even acknowledged were real, that Mm -hmm. you, not not to say you, but one could be drawn to some kind of system that makes things just seem a little bit more clear. As long as you don't do these things, you'll be okay. And if you do do them, well, you're getting what you deserve because you did something Mm -hmm. wrong.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow you're you're really hitting on actually a bit of part two in my book and that's looking at this from a sociological and psychological way of like where do these beliefs come from mm. you know and so in part two I do look at I try to show that The eternal torture chamber known as hell is like an intimidating, ferocious-looking dog with long, mangy fur who, after getting wet, looks like a skinny, feeble, and downright laughable animal. And so my aim is to demonstrate that hell does not originate from a divine being, but rather a result of human ponderings about the afterlife, morphing into a narrative of violent projections that actually can bind communities together. And what you just alluded to is, as I was taking a sort of a macro view of, because this isn't just about Christianity. Um, Actually, religion can be found all over the world. And many religions have a view of the afterlife where there's sort of this reward and punishment motif. And even with atomism, which is the oldest view and understanding of religion, even that had a sense of, well, while it may have not been God who can be mad at you, the ancestors uh, could be upset at you, right? And so I've come to realize that, and you said it perfectly, that part of the reason, another, the function of these afterlife narratives, such as hell. They have functions. And one is many passages of scripture and in other religion scriptures is to address oppressed and traumatized groups. And in a Christian sense, the Israelites, well, Jewish and Christian, the Israelites are Christians. So they were used, these narratives by biblical writers, to provide comfort and assurance to these groups. Assuring them that the suffering at the hands of other tribes and unrighteous individuals would come to an end, that the perpetrators and evildoers would be punished while the oppressed would be rewarded with the form of eternal life with God. So there really is a function. and another function, just to mention one more briefly, was, and again, this is in various religions, it was historically utilized to enforce religious doctrines and practices. Why? to mot- maintain social cohesion within the religious communities. Because the fear of eternal punishment or punishment by a divine figure served as powerful motivators, right, for individuals to adhere to their religious teachings and norms while encouraging them to be loyal to their communities. So these religious narratives function, right, and those are two, at least in my understanding, from a sociological perspective, to encourage the oppressed and to maintain uh, community cohesion. Makes sense. But, you know, as we have evolved, I think we can do something better than the stick. And I think the carrots, and actually love and self-acceptance and other acceptance and, you know, decreasing tribalism, I think it's a good thing in our day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I just want to add to that, like, quickly, that the whole idea of this eternal damnation, when you know, someone's being told you're your sin and you're sinning mm-hmm. and you're going to hell forever. And if it's something like identity, like who they are, being, let's say, gay, trans, mm-hmm. you literally won't be able to escape them from that for your life mm-hmm. on earth, even if eternity even if there's a possibility that this isn't true about the hell. Mm -hmm. existing after your life you're in that a form of hell you know at the time yes yes because you're just being told that who you are is just
1: intrinsically sinful evil acceptable despicable abominable right and the reason why i'm so passionate about this is because what you just said and here's the the raw truth about this some people have killed themselves. I
0: know, yeah,
1: because of these ideas, right? Because if you believe a God believes that about you, and God's community believes this about you, and then throw yourself in a family who believes what they all believe about you, people have killed themselves because of religious beliefs. So that's why this conversation matters, and that's why I I, I care yeah. about this topic.
0: Yeah, because it's inescapable even god you know sees all and knows right. all like what can you do you can't change who you are but who you are is yeah. unacceptable to god i can see you know and and i hope that hmm. you know maybe if anybody hears this who didn't know that there were other views maybe that will help in some way
1: yeah yeah and and speaking of other views just really quickly there are other views of uh, The afterlife, even within the Christian tradition. Because sometimes that's helpful for folks. Like the fundamentalist, typical evangelical understanding of the afterlife is not the only version in town and so there are other christian understandings of what happens after we die and it has nothing to do with a god who hates us because of our sin and because we didn't accept jesus will send us to be tormented and tortured for eternity there are other versions and uh, we won't get into them now but just throwing it out there there are other more love saturated and deeply relational versions of the afterlife within the Christian tradition, just throwing it out there.
0: Well, thank you. And I know that we don't have a lot more time, but I'd really love for you to, as you can, talk a little bit about for people who are wanting to understand, like how, how can your newest book help them where they are?
1: Yeah, this gets into part three of my book, where part two is more deconstructing from a sociological perspective Part three is really getting into principles and practices that can really help on a nervous system level, which if we're talking about trauma, this isn't something you can talk yourself out of. And so I spend over 120 pages in part three of the book that, yeah, very practical work that people can do because there are two aphorisms I mentioned frequently in, in my trauma work is that facts will not heal the tracks. And information does not necessitate transformation. So remember, the trauma, any kind of trauma, but the trauma of hell indoctrination is lodged in the tracts of our subcortical nervous system. So since trauma's imprint is on the mind and body, knowledge alone is insufficient to heal. So it's impossible to talk a lecture of victim out of chronic shame, unrelenting inner criticism, unworthiness, helplessness, insomnia, rumination, blast back nightmares and disturbing feelings. So part three, I talk about all kinds of different ways, you know, so I talk about memory reconsolidation, imagery work that people can do. I talk about a little bit of sort of EMDR, you know, therapeutic work that can, people can do with bilateral stimulation and again, compassion imagery. One of the most powerful work that I've experienced for myself and others is self-compassion work and not mm-hmm. just ideas, but this gets into Kristin Neff's work and others. Like self-compassion almost becomes a subversive middle finger to toxic religion, where you were told that God thought you were despicable. You're told that the community thought you were despicable. But to be able to do work around fostering an environment within yourself where you can love yourself, you can love your body, you can relate to yourself as you would a dear friend who is suffering, as opposed to with judgment and ridicule and rejection that's powerful for some very hard, but that's part of the work is, is helping folks be able to do that. And then working with the whole, whole chapter on the inner critic and helping people work through uh, self-criticism and then parent wounds, a whole chapter on parent wounds, and then a whole chapter on values, right? What is it like? to it's almost like for those of us who are in religion, we, like we had these tubes that were connected to the, the mothership and we were told what to do and how to believe and in our, our community, what to wear, what to listen to and to disconnect from that is extremely disorienting to people because it's now it's like, well, who am I? Who am mm-hmm. I apart from what other people were telling me? And so helping people to figure out their own values and what they love and don't love and like and don't like and what is the kind of life that they want to live. And even, you know, throw in a Bronnie Ware quote. I remember she wrote the five top five regrets of the dying. And she said that something, one of those regrets, I'll never forget because I take it to heart. Uh, And she said that one of the top five regrets was I regret living a life that others expected of me and not a life that was true to myself. It's like, wow, I don't want to go out like that. And so helping people figure out who they are, what they value, what that looks like practically, disentangling themselves from religion in that way and having a funeral for the gods in their life, the internalized other big O, whether it's internalized parents or internalized divine figures who are harsh and punitive and telling them what to do or not to do to have a funeral for them to really, to find a sense of liberation for who they are. It's so rewarding. So that's a little bit of, of what I get into in, in part three in the book.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's so powerful when you said having a funeral for the, the other, mm. like just, I was struck by you saying how the, you know, I understand it's like a framework of how to live, The whole idea is it's teaching you what to do, what not to do, what's safe, what's not safe, but it's skewed in a certain direction. And if that's been your whole literally indoctrination of who you are and what it means to be alive, then you're almost like starting like a newborn baby. If you're not, if you don't have that structure to work with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene. I don't know if how many listeners watched the, the Matrix, but where Neo gets unplugged from the Matrix and just how disorienting it was for him, and to then have him find himself in a different kind of world that what he knew was not real, and to now be a new human being in the world, the real world, their world uh, is is quite powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But- that movie, <laughs> <I'm> still, <laughs> I still don't understand that. So that maybe that's part of my oh, yeah, religious yeah. <laughs> development. My spiritual development is to study that film a, a little bit more and really get what it's saying. Because mm-hmm. I think part of like for myself not having that background of, you know, right. religion, literally mm-hmm. my husband can watch that and he's like, oh, this represents, and I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know that because that's not my right. like paradigm, yeah. but well, I just, I if the, we have time for one last little point, I mm-hmm. just like to say that one of the things that I can imagine would be really hard about that that deconstruction that you were just describing is that mm-hmm. if you were raised in an environment where you weren't supposed to ask questions and you really weren't supposed to think for yourself, yes, it's like how to even do that. And I've seen that with people who it's like, wait,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I don't know what I believe.
1: I mean, yes,
0: like, yes. I, am I allowed to think for myself? Like, what would that be like?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we didn't talk about this one piece. but One of the other consequences is, you know, many of us in these traditions were taught uh, that our bodies and emotions are inferior, untruthful, unspiritual, and, and fleshly. And so biblical propositions and reasoning were emphasized as the primary vehicles to truth and living the, the supposed Christian life. All that to say is we had to split off then these, you know, I was in my tribe, we emotions were considered demons. I know it's so weird, but they would literally, I bind you spirit of sadness or I bind you spirit of anger or spirit of lust and try, you know, we'd be prayed for with the understanding that someone was depressed, that that was because of a demon. So Mm. they would try to cast those, that emotional experiences out. So, but there's a problem with splitting our emotions in that way and consider them inferior. And without that, we know that emotions have valuable information. You know, we cannot fully understand and process our experiences and it would lead to a disconnection from our core selves. Yeah. And so not being in touch with our feelings and our authentic self has a lot of ramifications. And that's part of the journey is like, No, your body is good. Your feelings are actually trying to tell you something. Let's listen to them. Let's honor them. Let's hear what see what they have to say. But that can be so difficult, right? I don't know. I my body. I I, like Yeah. This sort of the disgust that people can have. My sexuality and pleasure. It's it's just so sad. All of these different layers of of religious trauma. Because the more we talk about it, the more layers that are unfolded here yeah and it's just it makes me really sad that religion at its best is supposed to bring forth the most powerful and embodied and loving human beings, but paradoxically can create so much pain and trauma and hurt and disconnection from our core selves. It's really sad
0: yeah, it really is it really is. Thank you for your vulnerability and and for what you're doing to Change this for others. It's really impactful and hopeful too, because from what I hear you say, it sounds like in your book, people can really begin doing this work through the mm-hmm. practices that you have there and not just having to, oh, teach about it and then let me go find out where that is, but mm-hmm. actually being able to experience it a little bit just through trying some totally. of the prompts in the book. So that's really valuable. Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Accessible. And then there's like
1: 10 or 15. There's a link in the book to 10 to 15 meditative audio. Uh, yeah, meditations that people can help bring. Like, I'm all about it's healing. Wonderful. I don't want to just deconstruct, but I want to help heal. You know, I don't want to be an angst filled person who's just talking ill. Now, I think it's a phase. I think it's an appropriate one, anger and rage and and hurt, but I'm a little past that wanting to be on the the other side and bring some hope and healing.
0: Well, I'm really grateful that you've shared your time so generously today and that that you're doing what you're doing. So just let us know quickly, where can people Mm -hmm. find all your stuff?
1: Sure. Well, any, any book is going to be found on any place you can find books. Um, Got my website, com. I'm a little bit of a dinosaur when it comes to social media. Probably the introvert in me is like uh, too much of a beast. Uh, But Facebook um, and uh, just started, I know I'm, I'm really late to the game here, Instagram. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that's it that's about it
0: hey it's okay there's no timeline I know. <laughs> but you said it's markgregorycaris.com that's correct okay mm-hmm. i'll be sure that we put that in the show notes so people can go directly Wonderful. to your website right from this interview mm-hmm. and mark thank you again Great. for sharing your thank wisdom you. today and and for sure. everything you're
1: doing thank you so much Laura, for being here
0: try therapy notes the number one rated electronic health record system available today. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.